How is it possible that it's already August? We hope you are enjoying your summer. Back by popular demand is our AirPods Pro giveaway. Members who successfully answer our bonus content quiz will be entered for a chance to win a pair of AirPods Pro. To participate, you must have access to the bonus sections of the podcasts, which you get by becoming a member. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of August, you'll receive 50% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code BONUSCONTENT, one word, at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code bonus content. Thank you for your support. Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation and Senior Correspondent at Yahoo News. Uh, This week, I'm joined by my friend Calder Walton. He is the author of uh, one of the best books on espionage I have read in recent years. And that's saying quite a lot because I've read almost all of them having to do my own book on Russian espionage. Uh, It's called Spies. Uh, Calder, what's the subtitle before I I screw that up? I'm I'm never good on subtitles. I'm always good on titles. The subtitle is The Epic Intelligence War Between East and West. There you go. Uh, And so Calder is a, uh, you're a fellow at the Belfer Center at Harvard University, yeah? That's right. Yeah. I'm the director of research at the Intel project here at the Kennedy School. There you go. And uh, so he and I have been in touch, as you can imagine, um, with a great deal of intensity over the last several weeks. I've been asking him questions at, about his book, uh, which is absolutely first rate and is one of the the best sort of comprehensive doorstop encyclopedias of modern intelligence, which is a very, very hard thing to do. I put it in the category of the Christopher Andrew Oleg Gordievsky book, KGB, uh, which basically did the same thing, but from Soviet intelligence perspective. Calder tries to get it from both sides of the street, Um, not just Russia, by the way, but also China and, of course, the West, the United States and the UK. And so just before I hit record, I said, listen, there's so much to talk about. (laughs) What do you want to talk about? Um, and there's, I have loads of questions, uh, but I figured, why don't we keep it, um, as they say, uh, you know, tied to a news peg uh, with the release. Somewhat manageable. Yeah. Yeah. With the release of the Christopher Nolan, uh, also epic film, Oppenheimer, which we've both seen now uh, and really is a fantastic artistic achievement. And this has dredged up a lot of questions and a lot of debate about McCarthyism, communism in the United States, the infiltration of the Manhattan Project by Soviet spies, and sort of the, I, I suppose you wouldn't say gray area because it would be more like red and, and, and white. Right. So, you know, what is that, pinkish areas of, um, you know, the American government and, and how it had in fact been uh, penetrated by Soviet intelligence, but also how that had been instrumentalized by populist reactionary figures in American politics who saw communist agents everywhere, including places where there were not. Uh, so Calder, first of all, it's great to have you on. I've been trying to get you on the program for ages, but uh, you're a busy man with the book schedule. Um, Michael, it's it's great to be here. It's great to connect with you. I'm happy to be here. And um, it feels like we've been sort of bouncing uh, emails and, and so on and so forth, backwards and forwards. So I look forward uh, actually to meeting 
in person hopefully soon as well yes exactly i mean there's no there's no pandemic excuse for that and i i owe you several rounds of whatever your poison is because among other things calder has has taught me how to uh, expertly navigate the UK National Archives to find MI5 files on GRU agents and officers, which files contain essentially almost everything that the CIA might have had on these officers, given the nature of the special relationship, which we're going to get into in the course of this program. But caller, let's start some, I mean, I, you know, you have a book to sell. What was the impetus behind researching this, writing this? I think it took you something like eight years. That, that's right. It was Seven years, about seven years. Well, the, imp the impetus, Michael, um, was um, moving to the U.S. and living through and witnessing Trump, Russia. And it was the uh, inundation of um, the 24-hour news cycle. And it was, so that was really the sort of, I wanted to try to contextualize this. You know, there's a tendency for everything to be unprecedented. And it's like, I don't need to tell you this. Um, but it was like, well, it's not necessarily un unprecedented. The, the, the tools, the delivery mechanisms for disinformation uh, are, are new, uh, but the underlying principles are, are absolutely the same. So I actually, I, I remember reading your study with, is it Peter Pomerantsev? Mm -hmm. You guys did um, about, about Russian Soviet disinformation. God, it was probably back in, like 2014. 2014 you guys i'll make you blush now uh you guys nailed it you you absolutely you were ahead of the curve you spotted this this juggernaut coming uh and you absolutely nailed it so it's funny you say that thank you for saying that you know i i, re I look back on that study and i haven't reread the whole thing in a long time but uh, if anything i think we were being a bit coy and quaint because we've we sort of grounded it on Ukraine, right? Well, that was where the, the, the first, you know, Ukraine has been the kind of petri dish or the, the laboratory of, of sort of everything that's happened now. Um, and, you know, everything from the crucifixion of a small child, which became a story that had, you know, a variation on that theme. It was, was being pushed uh, from very early days to, yeah, I mean, obviously neo-Nazis are now in charge of the country and all that. And we wanted to go back and find out what what is the genesis or what is the the the, the you know the the sort of origin story of russian disinformation and now i mean yeah yeah you know i don't know about you but i i feel that this has become too much of a cottage industry everybody is a disinformation expert that's days. right it's that's right hold a bit but it, it it's it's certain and then also i mean we have to then say well, anyway let me just say that the motivation for that that was the underlying motivation um and then at the Kennedy School, I became increasingly interested in China and Chinese espionage and Chinese intelligence and how little is sort of in the public policy realm that's being appreciated. Um, and then, of course, the war in Ukraine. So that really just uh, made it much more urgent uh, for me to try to get this book out. So um, that well, was well the motivation. Done. And everybody who is a listener to Foreign Office should go out and buy the book. Um, you can get it in hard copy. You can get it on Kindle. Um, but it, it's, it's really a fantastic overview of, I mean, what, more than 50 years, I mean, 80 years or some more. Yeah. It, I mean, I start off the book with this document that I found. Uh, it was one of those sort of moments in, in an archive. Um, it was a, a document, a British intelligence report um, from um, an agent, a Ukrainian uh, nationalist emigre in Poland, 
uh, meeting his uh, British handler. And this, this report is from February 1922. And honestly, you change the name Bolshevik for Putin, and it's the same bloody stuff. And I, I, when I saw this, I was like, literally cut and paste it for what we're seeing play out in the news today. So that really, when I found that, I was like, this sort of encapsulates my argument that, that uh, the West and the countries I focus on, in particular Britain and, and, the, and the US, um, the West has been stuck in a sort of intelligence war with Russia um, for 100 years and counting. Uh, I mean, I guess you could even go further back if you really wanted to, but um, my editors probably would have killed me. And I mean, I don't know if, if, if you agree with this perspective, but one of the things that I've, I've noticed is I spend a lot of time on the 1930s and 40s because, well, I, more of the, the, the 30s, I would say, prior to the Stalinist purge. But that was sort of the heyday of Soviet intelligence. I mean, you've got the Cambridge Five as, as sort of cornerstone achievement of the NKVD, which is the KGB. I mean, the GRU is running agents and illegals, Walter Kravitsky, Ignaz Rice, um, Whittaker Chambers and Alger Hiss, which we, I know we want to talk about because that's sort of been a possession of mine. Um, and then... Oh, look, this is like catnip for me, Michael, yeah, already. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and, and then, you know, going from the premier service in the world to being completely eviscerated by Soviet or Stalinist paranoia and self-cannibalization of the regime. And then today, we kind of still have this idea or understanding of Soviet or rather Russian intelligence services as being this formidable in dagger in, in, in actuality you find there is much keystone cops as they are james bond uh, or well well and that 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 image i think you're absolutely right michael that that image that perception of course has been carefully peddled by putin uh, himself um this sort of looking back as sort of hagiography of of uh, the history of russian foreign intelligence yeah uh, and this is um you know kind of masterful uh, GRU and uh, NKVD KGB tradecraft, but actually, to your point, you look you look at some of the um, the key huge milestones in in successes of of Soviet intelligence, and I would argue spills over to Russian intelligence today. Um, and actually, it has a lot more to do, certainly with Soviet intelligence, to do with the dedication of the agents yeah. than than any kind of sophisticated tradecraft on the part of, of the services. Yeah. So, I mean, I was shocked to find uh, the Cambridge spies, a story that's been told a, a lot. And, you know, is there really anything more new to say about it? Well, absolutely. Because you look at some of the, the files that have come out on the Brit through the British archives, and what you find is that actually um, at key points, First of all, Kim Philby betrays his other fellow. Um, this is so when the when the when the hunt is on for who's the third missing third man. Where are these two missing diplomats? So Burgess and McLean in May 1951 disappear. We now yeah. know they were they went straight behind the Iron Curtain, and the hunt's on, and 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 the um, suspicion is thrown on their friend from Cambridge, Kim Philby. Well, what does he do? He writes in the immediate aftermath of that to the heads of MI5 and MI6, and he literally throws them under the bus. He says, I think that they're Soviet agents, and um, they probably recruited each other back in Cambridge. Of course, he was the one he who actually recruited them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolute ass. So he, 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 he screws over everyone. He lies to everyone. Um, 
And then you look at the then at the the papers from the Madrokan archive, which I used a lot. Uh, parts of which are now declassified and available in Cambridge in the UK. Um, and what do we find? You find that Philby desperately uh, reaching out to his controller in the US at that key moment, and the controller's AWOL. <laughs> so again, it's like this this sort of these these great successes, or you know, the subject that we we will for today's conversation. Um, the atom spies, the, the Soviet penetration of the Manhattan Project. Again, query whether that is really just down to the dedication of the agents themselves. I mean, we know, we have it again from the Metrokan archive that they were basically struggling to keep up with the information that was being thrown at them from Julius Rosenberg and others, and they couldn't they couldn't mu- keep up with microfilming all of the material. So this is like you've got you've got agents who are so um, dedicated um that that's the secret to success and of course that gets that gets airbrushed out in under putin's um uh rule today well then the other side of it too and and this comes clear in your book very early on is that the lack of counterintelligence capability in the west it's not so much that they're so supernaturally gifted but we are blind deaf and dumb at key moments when we should be hypervigilant. I mean, you know, one of my favorite anecdotes is from the wife of uh, the GRU resident in New York in the early 1930s. It was one of Whitaker Chambers' first handlers, uh, Alexander Ulanovsky. And Nadezhda Ulanovskaya said, you know, in those days, you could walk down the street with a shirt that says, I am a Soviet spy, and no one would pay you any mind, not least of all the FBI. They're too busy hunting organized criminals and Nazis, right? So, it was all kind of conducted. It was called the underground, but the great irony was it was very much above right, above ground. out in the open. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's a great point. It's, um, I, I mean, pushing it an open door is the the phrase that keep coming comes to my mind looking at this. And then, then of course, the the striking moment for, uh, from my perspective whilst writing this was discovering that um, when the Soviet Union was dragged into the Second World War with the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. Operation Barbarossa, overnight, you know, Britain and um, becomes allies with with the Soviet Union. And what does the British Foreign Office do? Imposes a moratorium on all intelligence collection um, by the British government on the Soviet Union. And why does it do so? We've got the memo because allies don't spy on allies. And it, when I reading that, I was just like, yeah, "Gentlemen, you, don't open each other's mail." That's it. The same yeah, ethos yeah. of just yeah. like we can't possibly do this. Right. So again, uh, Stalin's um, extraordinary uh, intelligence collection on his Western allies. Yeah, but also they were just completely looking at, to your point. I mean, um, OSS uh, William Wild Bill Donovan said, didn't he, um, famously that he would um, put Stalin on OSS payroll if it meant defeating Hitler. And we now know that More was. Did it, exactly. and he basically did that. His um, his his right hand man, his aide, uh, was a Soviet agent. And I mean, if you look at the Venona decrypts of the um, the, the Soviet penetration of OSS, I th- I think it's fair to say it was probably the most penetrated agency in 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 history. This is a very crucial. This is a very crucial thing because you know the the the, the seminal post war moment. Uh, in America's kind of consciousness about morality and and where the public sphere, it, you know, impends upon the private life, 
is McCarthyism. Every schoolboy, every high school student opens a civics textbook and you can read pages and pages about the witch hunts and the night. But nobody actually reads or is told about Venona or the opening, such as they were of the Mos Moscow archives, certainly the KGB archives, what's come dribbling out now with respect to the GRU. And I mean, look, McCarthy was a buffoon and didn't know what he was talking about. And I think of the people that he named as communist agents or Soviet agents, uh, there were what, over 200 or something and, and only nine, yeah, only nine actually were, right? But all of that to one side, what Venona makes very clear is that almost at every level, the U.S. government was infiltrated by Soviet agents. And the, the most startling fact is the U.S. government or the U.S. intelligence community, particularly the FBI, knew it. They simply couldn't bring them to book as Soviet agents without burning this extremely sensitive data collection mechanism known as Venona. So they had to get them on other things, lying to the FBI illegal immigration, get them deported. It's what they call gray mailing, right? You get them on the lesser crime, but you basically neutralize them as an asset. And I mean, to your earlier point about the whole Trump-Russia thing, everybody to this day, everybody kind of in the, in, certainly on cable news and in the columns of the New York Times believes that the Mueller report, the Senate subcommittee report, this is sort of the final word on what happened. And I try to remind people, well, hang on a minute. We didn't know the full extent of what happened in the 1930s and 40s until the 1990s and early aughts. So why, you know, intelligence doesn't work this way. It takes decades to get at the bottom of things. I think, I mean, there's a couple couple things that, that come to mind. On the, on the earlier period, to, to my mind, the thing that is the great tragedy about what the US government knew through this, as you just said, sort of collection decryption effort, uh, later known as Venona, um, what the U.S. government and the U.K. government knew about the nature, about the extent of Soviet espionage in wartime and post-war, um, the United States. The tragedy is that both governments on both sides of the Atlantic clung on to that secret for far longer than it that any kind of basically even after they knew that the secret about Venona was blown. So I get it. You know, before then, um, sources and methods. You cannot, in a in a court of law, stand up and blow your your um, collection capability uh, to reveal the guilt uh, of an agent, even if it could be admissible as evidence. Query whether that or not. But um, the tragedy is that even when they knew that the secret had been blown through different Soviet agents um, who had access to Venona, and any kind of damage assessment would have actually realized. Um, that the secret was blown, they still they still kept a secret. So, so this one FBI uh, special agent officer, um, Robert Lamphere, uh, I think is how you pronounce the surname. He said to um, he said to the director of NSA, "Who are you keeping the Venona secret from? It's not from the Kremlin. It's from the American public." And he was absolutely right that that after you know at least by 1963, because that's when Kim Philby defected. And we know, and everybody knew that Philby had access to Venona. But even before that, there were agents who um, were known to be Soviet agents who had access to Venona. So it, it, what did it do? It just produced this warped understanding on the part of um, the US public. And as you said, you learn in US uh, history lessons and civic classes and stuff. Um, it just produced this warped 
uh, understanding about the nature of Soviet espionage. And sometimes, you know, certainly with Venona and, and data collection and intelligence, you end up, if not exonerating somebody, then sort of minimizing or reducing the, the, the level of accusation. I mean, we still, to this day, argue about the, the guilt of the Rosenbergs. And yet, had Venona been released, Ethel probably would have been spared the electric chair because it turns out he wasn't as guilty as she was elected. Exactly. No, 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 completely. I think I'm right in saying that Ethel didn't even have a, um, a code name in the Venona. Decrypts, which is, and then in, and then in archives that, um, as you know, that have been opened up in the 1990s. So, and then and then fast forward, as you just pointed out, Michael, about um, Trump Russia again, a, a tragedy or, or a, not the thing that isn't well appreciated, I would say, um, and, and should be, is that Mueller's report was looking at a criminal conspiracy, which is an extraordinarily high standard of evidence, right? Beyond reasonable doubt. And most intelligence work, it's nowhere near that. It's like balance of probabilities, if that, like more likely than not. So it's a, it's a, to this day, you, I mean, you lived and breathed it much more than I did all of this, Michael, but what happened to the FBI counterintelligence report probe into, into Trump and Russia? Um, that is something that, I tried to follow it and it just sort of seemed to disappear. It didn't get wrapped into the Mueller report. What the results of it were, I don't know. And then you have this bizarre situation of the FBI officer um, where you are in New York, um, whose name I've forgotten temporarily, um, who seemed to be on the take from Deripaska when, at least when he left office. But I know that's that's under under legal review at the moment, so we should probably not get ourselves into I mean, but, you know, I mean... Uh my understanding of that is, and I, his name escapes me too at the moment, but his, his on-paper title suggested that he would have been more integrated into the Trump-Russia investigation than he actually was. Oh, okay. Um, so it, it got a little sensationalized. But yeah, no, it is a problem, isn't it? I mean, these guys who have had access to innumerable American secrets, including about foreign adversaries, who then go off to work as lobbyists or paid agents, essentially, of... <laughs> Some of the people they were meant to be collecting data on. You really, know? really not great. So, yeah, that's, there is, I mean, basically, so sort of the overall thing that, that comes to my mind doing the research, both of this earlier period and then is is just how the nature of intelligence operates at a, at a lower level than a, than a, than a, um, a legal legal case it's the hardest so, thing in the world because you as writers you you always look for the kind of jason Bourne, james bond aspects of it but more often than not it's it's very one one ci person once compared it to sort of taking out the trash it's very mundane it's it's actually quite icky at times uh, there are kind of moral complications uh if ethical illusions uh but you know every so often you you hit pay dirt it, it, it's similar to being a writer in the archives you have that eureka moment which is rare you you know it when you see it right um it's it's hard because hollywood has essentially brainwashed the population into thinking it's fast car chases and you know listening to to spies telling you know secrets about impending thermonuclear war on the telephone i mean i, I actually i spoke to one of the fbi agents who um was uh, was tasked with Operation Ghost Stories, you know, the, the SVR Eagles. 
And I said, so that must have been kind of fun and exciting. And I think it was the, the guy whose fake name was Donald Heathfield. He's like, fun and exciting. I spent weeks on listening in to this guy bitching and moaning about putting IKEA furniture together in pitch perfect English, mind you, if not playing his guitar on the sides. That's that's kind of the guts of it, you know. The boring uh, reality. Boring of reality. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And again, look, looking at you and I have been talking uh, offline about. Uh, British MI5 dossiers on some of these targets. And that it does come through the, the humdrum, rather boring reality of intelligence. And I and I do think though that's that uh John Lacare gets it right, or Graham Greene in, in their novels, of of it's a lot of it is um bureaucratic and far from glamorous. But then as you point out, sometimes then when it all comes together, it can produce. And that that's of course, you know, with Soviet intelligence and the atom bomb project the manhattan project it this is where a moment where intelligence really can change history and it did change history um that <laughs> history and it, all of its ironies that as um christopher nolan shows really well depicts and i'll just emphasize what you said earlier as a as a artistic journey i mean that film is just unbelievable it's just I can't recommend it enough to uh, to anyone listening. It's it's absolutely phenomenal. Um, and he does he manages to to capture the subtleties of Oppenheimer's politics. I mean, you know, one of the hard things too is is Americans they don't really study history all that well. I mean, in the UK, I've I, I already, well, yeah, <laughs> maybe these UK days, UK you learn it in 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 schools. You learn, I mean, basically in, in right. history, it's Henry VIII and Hitler, right. But you know, it's a, <laughs> exactly. You know, the, the the historian in the UK, E.P. Thompson, has a phrase, very nice phrase, called the enormous condescension of posterity, which is looking back at a time. You, it's very easy to say, well, how could you have been so stupid, or how could you have been so simplistic in your understanding of the world? But you had to be there and live it in order to understand it. And in the 1930s, the Spanish Civil War, the rise of Hitler, the rise of fascism in Europe. Um, a lot of people, if they didn't quite look to the Soviet Union as the future, they looked at communism as an ethos as the only viable alternative to the collapse of liberal democracy, global economic depression, etc. And you, it's hard to sort of judge someone for becoming at, at minimum a fellow traveler, at maximum a member of the CP. But that does not mean they all stayed aligned with that ideology or with that, that movement. Um, and funny, I just well, last point. I, you know, I'm reading the correspondence between Whittaker Chambers and William F. Buckley Jr. and the extent to which National Review, I mean, essentially the, the magazine lodestar of post-war American conservatism, was staffed by ex-commies who became anti-commies. Chambers, not least among whom, right? Max Dietzman, Willie Schlamm, uh, James Burnham. It's extraordinary. You know, I mean, it, it's the heretic aspect of American politics that is really most fascinating. And then how many of those people, Michael, perhaps ended up working, you know, um, Encounter Magazine, uh, the kind of the the, the CIA. Um, Irving Crystal culture. and uh, yeah. Stephen Spender. Yeah. Spender, exactly. Um, you know, uh, and there's that volume written by, um, I think Arthur Kessler edited it called The God That Failed. Yeah, which is just to your point, the the the, the heretics, uh, the people that have been there, the true believers who have who have um, 
turned away from the faith. I mean, I, some people read Darkness at Noon, which is meant to be the parable <laughs> yeah. of, of That's it. And they were converted to communism because Kethler stated what it was like to be in the movement and to be a true believer at its highest level, right? I mean, that's how clever these guys were. But anyway, uh, sorry to distract. The point is, Nolan explains that milieu very well, like what Oppenheimer was living in and the kind of currents he was, he was traveling in. And yet, he never became a member of the party, and he never spied. He might have been loosey-goosey with his associations, and you know his friendships tended to trump considerations of operational security but i mean that's not exactly no uh, it, abnormal it was, you know i mean it, it, you're absolutely right that that pre-war um kind of ethos of uh fellow travelers of actually um who is going to defend uh the world from fascism and then you throw in his um jewish heritage as well and i thought they did that very well in the film well of they became personal um but we i mean you know and again it's um the work of um um john haynes and harvey claire and um vasiliev um their book called spies where they've got they've they've really gone into sort of forensic detail about what um about oppenheimer's allegiance and they made the fantastic point that yes he was never a soviet agent he was definitely not a spy, but that's not through a lack of um, trying on the part of Soviet intelligence that tried to get him. He was high up on their wish list. Of course, he would be, um, but the the idea the, the 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 idea that he was a Soviet agent can definitely be put to rest. Um, and I just think I think that the, the that story of then how he was. Um, you know the, the the vendetta against him in the McCarthyist era. Um, it is so well done by Christopher Nolan um, that that it's yeah, worth really worthy. The the MI5 dossier on Oppenheimer, which I looked at when I was writing the book. Maybe we'll tweet out some snap some bits of it, Michael, because it gets all the. There's a couple pages in there, which gets all the moments that Christopher Nolan depicts. The, the 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 meeting with um the, the fellow berkeley academic where he said um chevalier i think his name was where he's like we can get messages over to the and and all you're doing this was always the 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 trope was always all you're doing is passing information to a wartime ally and 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 you know don't we want to help out them papering over and airbrushing out you know giving uh atomic secrets to one of the the world's Worst dictators, worst dictators in history, uh, is something different than just giving intelligence to a um, secrets to a to an ally. But um, it's you know what did it mean? It meant that that the, the, there's just ironies in spades about the uh, the end of the war uh, after the Trinity test um, in the desert in New Mexico uh, when. Um, the scientists send word to Truman, who's meeting um, the British um, and um, Stalin in Potsdam, in Berlin's rumbled outskirts, um, that they've successfully uh, detonated this test, that they had this new weapon. And Truman, who's just, you know, like a couple months in, and he's only been indoctrinated into the secret uh, when he became president in April 1945. Um 
he tells he decides to tell Stalin. And you've got a note. I found this note from um, the British uh, delegation. Um, Anthony Eden writes the note about the the meeting in which Truman is telling Uncle Joe about this new weapon. And Eden says, he didn't really seem too surprised. (laughs) Of course he didn't. We see he actually knew about it. He had everything, yeah. Um, He knew it back in 1942, which is, you know, years before Truman was known about it. I mean, he just can't make this up. But the the, the, the issue, to my mind, and why I think the film is so good and the underlying issues are so relevant today is that what is the purpose of what can espionage in a um, research and development institute like Los Alamos actually do? It can. We can now see from Soviet records, and there's David Holloway's book, this Stalin and the Bomb, the classic work. Well, what did it actually do? It accelerated Soviet research and development on their own atomic bomb project. It would that would have happened anyway. Stalin, of course, was throwing slave labor at uh, his atomic bomb project. They would have created one, but what did it do? It accelerated it. It allowed scientists to avoid all the wrong turns and stuff that, that, that they had taken in Los Alamos. And to my mind, that is, there's a parallel, a direct parallel there with research and development projects today for the technologies that we know are going to change our lives. So artificial intelligence, um, bioengineering, um, quantum computing, So um, to what extent are the secrets that are being developed um, in the US, in labs, perhaps up here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, to what extent have they, those secrets been unlocked, stolen by hostile states, Russia or China, uh, that is allowing them to accelerate, to kickstart, to leapfrog over all of the mistakes made? Um, we won't know, um, but it seems to me that that is, we won't know for years, uh, but it seems to me that's entirely possible. And there's a parallel there of what, um, we, what we see in, with the Atabon project, Manhattan Wasn't, project. I, I forget, I, I, uh, Chinese espionage, unfortunately for me, is a big lacoon in my knowledge of the subject. As, as with most people, Michael, I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. yeah. But wasn't yeah. there, wasn't there a case of, um, I think it was Chinese hacking or something that was described as the biggest transfer of intellectual property in human history. And this was recent. And it, again, a phrase like that is quite arresting when you say it or when you hear it. And yet it's not been absorbed or it hasn't kind of filtered into the popular consciousness of the American people. No, that, that's exactly it. It's um, so the, the it was sort of Generally, it was it was they actually made that point back in like 2014, I think, of saying that that uh, Chinese that China is the the world's greatest cyber thief, um, and that uh, its cyber hacking is more than all the other nations' known activities of other states put together, and and, and so some the, the NSA made that point, I think, back in 2014, that it's the great constitutes the greatest transfer of wealth in history wealth, right um, intellectual property <laughs> right so uh, that was what really at the towards the end of my book i was like this is the thing that we are you know if, if history does rhyme as mark twain famously said what are we i i you know i don't think anybody needs to be told i think i think russia and putin's true colors have been exposed to the world thankfully 
I think that there is, we have been very slow to think about China and the national security implications of Chinese espionage. And, and there's it seems to me, to your earlier point, there's just a, a striking parallel there with the early Cold War um, and, and how um, it was America getting being very late to the game in terms of dealing with Soviet espionage, not even having a, uh, an intelligence service until 1947. <laughs> and it seems to me that, once again, um, Western governments in the US in particular have been, have been all of the attention focused elsewhere, um, particularly on counterterrorism. Um, and this is, I think, one of the one of the chapters that when the records do come out, um, we will find is that the post 9-11 war on terror and the and the um, um, plow the US government's plowing of resources into counterterrorism for understandable reasons, you know, with like clear and present threats to, to national security, but resurgent great powers, hostile states went went on the back necessarily went on the back burner. And then I've been the some of the striking things I, I found was that interviewing CIA officers with deep expertise on China from that period. And they have it so internal Chinese Ministry of State Security um deliberations from 2005, 2006, the sort of the height of the war on terror, marked with absolute glee to see the United States mired in the Middle East. And this was the moment when they could push, try to supplant the US out of Southeast Asia. Um, and that's only become more more extreme since um, Xi Jinping took power in China. So it's really that that period of the night, I mean, when the, you know, we're, we're all looking over here, um, counterterrorism focused on that. And meanwhile, China and Russia see that as an opportunity. It seems to me, again, direct parallel with the second world war everything being focused over here and what are we doing about um the the continued soviet threat but and but for all that i mean you know russia got involved in the middle east in a major key in 2015 with its direct intervention in syria something that as a journalist i mean i saw coming based on what people on the ground were saying oh all of a sudden people at checkpoints are speaking russian and there's some hubbub at, uh, you know, in Latakia building in this, expanding this air base. So clearly this intelligence knew this was going to happen. And I think the, the, the logic in the Obama administration was, oh, let them have it. It'll become their quagmire. When in fact, you know, again, it's the, the problem of mirror imaging. Our adversary is going to do things exactly the way we would do them under the same circumstances. When in fact, no, they do things a lot differently. Dropping bombs on hospitals and bakeries and then coming back around for a second go just to annihilate and terrorize the civilian population. That's the Russian way of war, as we're now seeing unfolding in Ukraine. Yeah. And I don't know, as you say, it was it, the, the bench got progressively shorter since the end of the, the Cold War. And, I'll, I'll, you know, what worries me, Calder, is that, OK, if we take a very optimistic view of where things are headed, that Ukraine will be victorious, Putin is now on the back foot, uh, probably not long for this world. Um, I've been having chats with people in Russian intelligence who, I mean, were not so tacitly cheerleading Prigozhin because they wanted a change of regime. Uh, and a lot of them are saying things like, he needs to leave and this war will be um, purifying for the Russian soul, meaning the boys coming home 
will now have a real sense of priority and not just care about you know chasing girls and buying luxury cars and going on holiday. I, again, this is this is sort of the the Narodnik view of 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 Russia. But put put all this to one side. America's attention span is very short, and when the war concludes, however it does conclude, my fear is we're going to look at Russia as problem solved. When in fact, as we saw from the early '90s on all the way up until the 2000s it's never a problem solved and regression and you know the the reconstitution of dark forces i mean christ dark forces could very well inherit this country and and make it even more of a threat to europe and to the world and i just hope that the bench does not get short again but it stays i mean if anything it needs to lengthen because they're going to be here for a while you know that's exactly it i mean just even on the the way that you just described that though you know the, the folks that you're talking to Saying that it will give the Russian Russian soldiers uh, returning a sense of um, patriotism. What is the implication for that for the West? Exactly, they're going to want revenge. They're going to want to take it back out on the West. Yeah, exactly the same narrative as we find in the 1990s, uh, and, and it's hopeful job done, as you said, in the West. And actually, then when you when you look at the um, there was a I used a tranche of British Foreign Office records. Um, from the early 1990s about their liaison with Russian intelligence um, in 91, 92, 93. Interestingly enough, um, I found Christopher Steele. We talked about Trump. Uh, I, fa- I found him because he was in the uh, working undercover in the British embassy in Moscow at that point. I uh, found his name in there. Anyway, but the reports were, were clear as day, which is... Um, the KGB, you know, the, the FSB is it became the SVR. They've changed their names, but it's the same. It's the same people. It's the same process, and this um, is effectively a state within a state. Um, that was as early as 1992-93, and compare that to the public narrative about the end of the Cold War. I mean, the seeds of it were the all triumphalism like, was all yeah, 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 yeah. So that is, I think you are absolutely right that we need to be very, very uh aware of that history now that that if if i were in involved in any kind of policy prescription it would be you know whatever outcome with the war in ukraine whatever victory looks like but if we have any ability to be able to we use the word if 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 putin is removed and then there's another uh leader who is hopefully of a different persuasion. I mean, I have my own misgivings about that. I think that it's more likely to be, you know, Patrashev or someone comes in, cut from the same cloth. Uh, but let's just say that there is a room for some sort of progressive movement in Russia. Castrating the power of the FSB has to be absolute a key priority. Because if you don't stamp that out, the le- that's the lesson from the 1990s. Um, then we're going to be, we've got the root. We're laying the seeds for some serious problems in the future. Well, I mean, the thing that Russia has never had, and I, I'm very skeptical it will ever have, no matter what happens, um, is illustration to show what these guys got up to and to show what they did to their own people first. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's the missing 
piece of the puzzle, I think, for the, the post-Cold War settlement. I mean, it happened in virtually every other Soviet satellite state and Warsaw Pact nation, which is why the recrudescent of recrudescence of, of communism and you know the, the sort of security apparatus as it was known then is all but impossible in these countries. Um, but in Russia, no. And that was Putin's original project to, to build back up the Czechist that's it. That had that's kind it. of fallen apart. That's it. Yeah. And, and the thing is that the deliberation, I'll just sort of um, offer this thought for, for you and, and listeners, but um, in that period of the early 1990s, one of the reasons why um, Western governments, NATO, didn't go harder on dismantling, unlike, so unlike in other Soviet republics where you know, lawyers, teams, lawyers came in, new constitutions, da, 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 da. Um, how do we have an intelligence agency, security agencies that operate within the rule of law? None of that in, in, um, in Russia. Uh, and the overwhelming reason was because of Russian nuclear arsenal. And we need to have a powerful security intelligence apparatus in order to safeguard former Soviet uh, nukes. And the problem is we're going to have that same thing with Russia going forward. Whatever happens to Putin, we can't possibly not have a powerful security apparatus. The risks of proliferation are too great. That's going to be the, I think to me, that's going to be the really difficult thing about not dismantling the FSB is the um, um, saying, well, if you if 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 we, if we simply get rid of the FSB, what's going to happen to the to the nukes or the GR, for example? But you know, I mean, in most again, we're we're getting so far into a utopian realm given the state of Russia today. But in most democratic countries, there is civilian political oversight over the security services to rein them in. I mean, certainly in the United States, you know, I always love I always love when the sort of MAGA people talk about the deep state and the FBI running, you know riotous as though it were even it was it's the hoover era on on steroids and yet every fbi agent i ever talked to is like do you know how much paperwork is involved in doing something like you know searching someone's home for instance do you know do you know the threshold of of, of evidentiary surety you have to have to go before a judge to get the license to do that uh much less to do uh, uh the warrants and all the rest of it i mean and and of course mistakes mistakes have been made and mistakes will be made because you know, there's human beings fallible. and wherever there are human beings there's going to be fallibility. But then you look at these other. I mean, you look at what the Russia. There's, I mean, okay, yes, technically there's paperwork, but there's also F, FSB officers who moonlight as private security consultants and sell personal data on the dark web, which is how my friend and colleague Christo Grozev ends up unmasking Russian intelligence officers. You know, there's the active reserve, which is, or the the, off, the apparatus of attached officers, where FSB officers are technically given day jobs in banks, and they end up extorting the bankers and saying, you know, if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, I'll throw you in Lubyan, you know, into Lafort, whatever. I mean, it's <laughs> this is not. You want to talk about a deep state? That's a deep state. Absolutely. So, like, and and then you have this weird, then kind of, um ideological affinity between some of the MAGA folks um, looking at Russia as a kind of bastion for conservatism. And, and you know, we, LBGTQ uh, goes to die there. And this is like, it's, a, it's, so we have a deep state here, according to them, 
but it doesn't exist in Russia. It doesn't exist over uh, there. Right. Yeah. I mean, and culturally, it, they're more aligned with, even though, I mean, all of this, as you know, is, is so liquid and it's, it's just manufactured by Putin for Western consumption. I mean, you know, you, you look at his Kublai Khan pleasure dome built on the Black Sea and you wonder what's actually taking place there. It's not exactly the kind of thing that, you know, Pat Robertson and the Christian right of America would. Is there like a pole dancing and stuff? Do you remember seeing that? Pole dan I mean, the MAGA people are probably okay with the pole dancing, but yeah, you know, I mean. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Well, it's, um, no, it, uh, I mean, difficult to know what to say other than the way that I concluded this bit of the book, which was all said and done, does the West have a Putin problem or a Russia problem? And I'm afraid that I've come to the conclusion that we have a Russia problem. Well, with, without a doubt. And I mean, it, it's, it's difficult for somebody like myself because you know, as I introduced myself, I'm director of special investigations at the Free Russia Foundation, all of whom are very excellent people and, you know, uh, really genuinely believe in the future of Russia as being a liberal democracy with rule of law and respect for human rights and civil rights. And I mean, my colleague, Vladimir Karamarza, is now staring down the barrel of a quarter century. 25 telling years. Telling the truth about a war, which, by the way, I know a lot of my um, Ukrainian friends are, are quite down on all Russian dissidents or all Russian opposition, particularly the Navalny camp. But I can tell you, Karamaza from 2014, the, the seizure of Crimea and the outbreak of dirty war in Donbass was categorically opposed to Russian policy and is is 100% in favor of the restoration of Ukraine's 1991 borders. Um, and so there are elements there. I mean, there are people worth supporting at the political and the civil society sphere, but unfortunately, they are completely powerless. They are destroyed and cast to the wind, living in Europe at best, or sitting in a jail cell or a court, you know, cage at worst. And again, I the future does not look bright for this country. Um, I think we just have to be very realistic in our appraisal here. This is not He's one of He's he's surely one of the bravest, along with Navalny, one of the bravest people in in Russia at the moment. I knew him briefly uh, at Cambridge in the early two thousands, and I think I just saw that BBC Radio Four had done a interview with his wife uh, in light of today's, or was it yesterday's? Um, uh, uh, his, the the Court of Appeal, what was it? Um, rejected his appeal, so he's staring down the barrel, as he said, of 25, 25 years. I mean, one one praise and hopes that whatever comes out of a post-Putin Russia, that someone like that would ride to the rescue. Um, I think knowing the little bit about Russian history that I do, that I, I see that as, alas, unlikely. So There's a, 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 an FSB defector um, who I've interviewed for my, my book. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you about your book, Michael. You were kind enough to, to plug mine, so I also want to Ask you yeah, about well, it. I mean, you know, yours took what eight years. Mine was supposed to be done in a year. It's we're on year four or five. I mean, look, it's just you don't want to tell the story of this service and be mm, too uh, microscopic. You you have to kind of give the breadth of it. And and you know, look, I'm I'm sort of wrestling with the thesis of my book, uh, but I will say there is a great deal of continuity from 1918 until now. But it's also a great deal of discontinuity. So, you know, I spent a lot of time in the 30s because that was sort of the heyday, the apogee of the GRU, when I think it's fair to say they were 
probably the premier intelligence service on the planet, and and better at that point than the Agpu uh, and and their foreign intelligence arm. And where Stalin destroyed it all. I mean, every officer of note was either purged, sent to the gulag, bullet in the back of the head, defected, and then bullet in the back of the head or machine gunned in Switzerland or then suicided, as we say, not committed suicide. Um, and yeah, I mean, and now we see the GRU sort of back with a bang, yet, you know, it's it's it's, it's a hard one, isn't it? Because, you know, I, I, I ask Western intelligence officers and CI people all the time, how would they class the, the board of Skripal assassination? Because clearly it failed in killing him and his daughter. And yet, it can't really be described as an utter failure, can it? Because it it paralyzed one of the leading countries in Europe, a NATO EU, well, no longer EU member, but NATO country, um, turned a sleepy cathedral city into a demilitarized zone, ended up killing innocent civilians as collateral damage, and was still the, the unleashing of WMD in the heart of Europe. Um, that in itself is a success in terms of the psychological effect success if you measure it through like a sort of two fingers up recklessness no, not it's not even relevant much much more extreme than that but just like a nihilistic if you like of i don't we don't even really care if we're caught we don't care if if there's even like a facade a facade of like a plausible deniability is implausible deniability um and uh we just don't care that if, you met, if that's the kind of measurement of success, then it's it, absolutely right. It's a success. But, you know, I think that is the, the GRU, um, I mean, there have been a, a spate of um, hacks, haven't there, that have been, uh, like, not successful. So, uh, you know, I. but again, do we know if it's, to my mind, do we know if it's GRU or FSB or SVI? You know, it's difficult to keep track of. Well, I mean, one thing is that the older generation, and I, I, you know, I've talked to some people who are out of the service, but you're never really out of the service. They haven't defected, so they still live in Russia. And there's a view that uh, of 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 you know disbelief that you know Mishkin and Chapiga so sloppy and so stupid, and because it's not our service, not our service. No, there's no. It has to be some Western conspiracy theory. It's not true. And then the dawning realization, oh, it is true. I mean, and again, it, it's it's the heart of Putinism where everything is is just a mediocre and corrupt and fallen, you know? And you see this now writ large on the battlefield. I mean, this was supposed to be the indomitable army that could wipe the floor with NATO and they can't even wipe the floor with Ukraine. Uh, I think, I mean, my own my own view is that and this gets back to your, your point at the, at the very beginning of our conversation of it's been a very well cultivated narrative on the part of Putin for the for the uh, over the course of the two decades about the sophistication of Soviet and Russian intelligence. And certainly, you know, th there are some been some spectacular successes with the Manhattan Project, um, you know, the Cambridge spies, you know, you can, um, and then you know, in that kind of nihilistic way, as you said, assassinations on European soil. Um, but corruption seems to be, and it is the actual, if you really want to understand Putin's Russia, it's it's systemic, state-driven, basically mafia state. And once you start understanding that, 
And if you understand it more as a, like a mafia syndicate with a state attached to it, then I think it begins to make a bit more sense. Uh, you know, my, my friend and a former guest on the show, Elliot Cohen, um, says that, uh, you know, militaries are a reflection of the society that they, that they serve. And intelligence services are also and a reflection of the society that they serve. And one of the things, you know, we were talking about the zealotry of 1930s radicals or anti-fascists became communists or flirted with communist ideology. They were committed. They believed in something. And for them, it was existential. Ukraine is committed and believes in something, namely its own survival. So it's very existential. And so if you look at like what Gur, Ukraine's military intelligence service, which in a, in a sense is sort of the kissing cousin of the GRU. A lot of the officers would have been GRU officers, but fall of the Soviet Union. If you look at the sort of operations they're doing and the brazenness and the success that they're having, this is what Russia used to do. It's when it, Russia was good and it believed in something, but now it believes in, I mean, it pretends to believe in, in its own patriotic you know, but it's not, they don't really, you know, so it, it, it's, it's quite interesting to see how Ukraine has evolved and matured. Uh, it's not to say that there's no corruption in Ukraine. My God, there is, you know, needs must. And we're seeing a reflection of this in the intelligence sphere as well. Def I mean, it, 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 whenever corruption in Ukraine is mentioned, we need to, um, yeah, yes, understand that history, serious problems with corruption, but also understand that there's a very deliberate Russian active measures campaign to, to insinuate that um, through any any outside. Um, so I had a thought, and then now it's gone, Michael. <laughs> well, did we cover? I mean, I know we had a preliminary we, discussion of what we would like to cover. We did Oppenheimer. You kidding? No, this is did the thirties. Like a, a, this has been a geek geek out fest for me of names that there's only about half a dozen people on the planet when you when you when you mentioned bike off and people like that 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 uh that sort of, that oh yeah so I, I mean i could, right. so this is the conversation we had before i hit record so calder as i mentioned has been showing me how to navigate the mi5 uh files uh and one of the gru handlers who's kind of the first character i introduced in my book is this guy boris bykoff who was a colonel in the gru in the 1930s, and he's the guy who convinced Whittaker Chambers, why don't you convince some of the agents to start stealing documents because now they're all in government, State Department, Treasury, et cetera. And he's, he's such a, I mean, he, he's sort of the, the quintessential homo sovieticus, right? Um, he's, he speaks German with a Yiddish accent. He's Jewish, but he's also anti-Semitic. You know, so he's deeply kind of, and just kind of Stalinoid creature and one of the one of the mysteries that i was able to solve going through these files and here's your little eureka moment of how being a historian and being an intelligence officer or data collection analyst kind of have you have these little moments one of the agents that was part of this apparatus julian wadley who fessed up during the whittaker chambers alger hiss case um claimed that bykoff as he remembered him was a one-armed man and it's like, that's a hard thing to kind of misremember. You know, he's missing an appendage. It turns out he he would wear his his overcoat and let one of the sleeves dangle loose. And he would keep his arm tucked into his waistcoat in the, quote, Napoleonic fashion. So this is in the MI5 archive. And it, it was like the light bulb went off. That's why Julian Wadley thought he only had one arm. He never met him without his coat on. That's where he got it from. I mean, the other the other thing that, um, that I, I found so 
revealing, looking at these files, spending more hours than I care to admit, reading through all the dossiers, is then the the te telephone conversations and the and the, the intercepted correspondence. So they've steamed literally steamed open um, letters. Those letters, otherwise completely lost to history. And then you can find out, um, you know, about probably more than you want to admit, want to know about people's private lives. You mentioned the historian E.P. Thompson. So um, I think his MI5 file is declassified. Certainly Eric Hobsbawm, the, the great um, uh, Communist Party member, historian, towering figure, uh, brilliant historian. But uh, looking at his MI5 file, multi-volume, um, you can find out a lot more about Hobsbawm's private lives than, than his, certainly his biographer as known so it's he was also i mean i i give him credit in that even to the point of diminishing returns i think he gave an interview to michael ignatiev in a publication called salma gundi in the 90s and ignatiev put to him he said so knowing everything you know about stalin and stalinism and soviet history would you have spied for the russians he said absolutely so he kind of just acknowledged that, you know, he, he's still a true believer. And so credit where it's due, it's, at least he's upfront about it. He's not being, you know, he's not being deceptive about his views. Um, but yeah, I can only imagine what MI5 is. Well, well the, the extraordinary on that note of um, um, the bugged, they had listening devices in the Communist Party headquarters in London. And um, so they were, you know, listening into the, all the party deliberations. And then, and then, as you know from the files, there's sort of this ongoing, like um, all of this information coming in from the bugs were then carefully um, recorded in different people's personal files. And so, uh, and so whenever there was Hobsbawm came in, <laughs> came into the party in, in King Street in London, um, you, you would get the conversation before he came in the room and then after. And and the party members were like, that guy's such a fucking bore. <laughs> And then they they would be like, uh, and just like, oh, here he comes again, like, and he did, it's just gold, absolute gold of what the party actually thought about Hobsbawm. <laughs> well, Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure, absolutely, um, and, and thank you for making the time. And uh, I don't know, I mean, like I say, I, I always remind my listeners that this is not a normal interviewer interviewee kind of show. I, these are people I speak to on a semi-regular basis and I just, in this instance, hit record and this is the conversation that we have. So it's been an absolute pleasure. And I want to, I, I hope you will keep us all updated on your book as it progresses, because that's going to be a, a, a much needed. I mean, just, you know, on a kind of serious note that there's a lot of emphasis. You mentioned Christopher Andrews book. There's a lot of emphasis on um, the KGB. Um, but uh, GRU, uh, your book will be a um, uh, much needed, really good history of that. Um, there are there are other histories of the GRU, but I think that the times come for a really good, up to date one. Yeah, no, and I mean it's it's kind of extraordinary to look back and retro engineer what has happened in American history as a result of this service, and Americans don't didn't even know this service existed until 2016, 17. And then they were like, oh, you mean like the KGB, right? They thought it was the same thing. And it's, so you, the, the, the origin story of my book, if you like, is very similar to your own. It's like, what are we really looking at here when we talk about the GRU? Anyway, uh, Calder. Yeah, uh, this was great. Pleasure. Yeah, and, come back. Uh, and to be, continued, to be continued in person, I hope. Absolutely, over a pint or several, which I owe you for all your research help. <laughs>
No, so if so, if you're, what was her name again? Your assistant, Kato. Yeah. Kato, yeah. If she needs any more help on that, let me know. And and then likewise, the um, I'll send her the link to that file about the GRU headquarters, but that's only in in person at the National Archives in London. Yeah. But if you've got somebody local, um, then they can go along and take a picture. Will do. All right. Um, you've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, uh, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation and Senior Correspondent at Yahoo News. Although not for long, I'm actually going to be taking over a new position at The Insider, a Russian uh, news publication that has uh, helped Bellingcat with all their unmaskings and um, big exclusives on the GRU and FSB. I'm going to be the English language editor of their forthcoming English language publication with my friend Simon Ostrovsky. So just a little teasing that at the end here. Uh, my guest this week is Calder Walton, the author of the monumental book, Spies, the epic battle between East and West. No, come on. What is it? At the epic epic intelligence war between intelligence war. war. Yeah, yeah. There we go. War between East and West. Uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm.